We are ready for Isaiah chapters 33 to 35 in our study. We have several visitors with us. We're glad that you're here. If you're here for the first time in our study in Isaiah, that we are doing this a little different. Instead of a typical class, we are presenting this in, in a sermon or lecture style. And so that's our, our plan for the book of Isaiah, at least. And so um, that's how this will be presented. If you have the handout, that's not necessary, but it does help some to listen and just watch for some of the information, and I'll try to call attention to that as we go along. Also, if you're visiting with us, you can access the workbook that we're not following it word for word, but the workbook that I've put together on Isaiah by going to our website. If, you, if you've got a device with you and you want to go there, it's at elbethelchurchofchrist.com. Look under class schedule, and you'll find where you can download that. Now, you'll need a password. I'm not going to give that because we're on YouTube, but if you want a password, raise your hand and uh, one of the deacons um, will come around and tell you what that password is if you want to do that. So feel free to do that. Raise your hand and, and Dathan's in the back. He'll go back. He'll come around and tell you what the password is. Anyway, let's get ready for Isaiah 33 to 35. This is the outline we're following of the book of Isaiah, two major sections. The first is chapters 1 to 39, and then we have 40 to 66. We are in this fourth subsection, section 1D, woes against the sins of the people. We've seen the prophecy against Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, we've looked at the prophecy against the nations, that nation section, and then the world judgment and deliverance of God's people, which was a summary of the nation section. We're going to see another summary of the nation section in chapter 34 tonight. But we have a series of woes here. And that's one of the things on the handout. This is completing the series of woes that started with chapter 28. So chapter 28 starts a series of woes here. And now the next section we're going to get to, uh, we're going through 35 tonight. Chapter 36 begins a whole new section. So next week we're going to talk about this historical interlude that gets a little more interesting in the mind of some people. It's all interesting to me, but this historical interlude gets quite interesting concerning Hezekiah in 36 to 39, and we'll get to that next week. So this is what we saw last time, the series of woes that started in 28, and that went through 32 in our last study. And so we have the woe upon Ephraim and Judah, the woe upon Jerusalem uh, for blind formalism, woe to those who think they can hide from God, woe to the rebellious people, and woe to those who rely on horses and trust in chariots. And so now we're ready for more woes. And the next woe that he mentions here in chapter 33 is woe to Assyria. Then chapter 34 and 35 deal with the judgment on the nations. That somewhat serves as a summary of that nation's section. And that's versus the joy and gladness of the redeemed. That's obviously messianic. And so he contrasts those two. We have questions about that and we'll get to those a little bit later. So let's look at uh, chapter 33. Woe to Assyria. This is the foe of God's people. This is under the Syrian period. So I want to go back just for a moment to this outline that this is during the Syrian period. This is during the Syrian conflict when Assyria has, has been threatening the northern kingdom of Israel and finally takes it in 722 B.C. And they also then are making threats to Judah and Judah scared to death. And that's why they've made an alliance with Egypt and seeking for some help from Egypt and God's told them and promised them in our last study that he was going to turn them back and not allow them to take Judah. Uh, but are they going to put confidence in God or confidence in the nations around them? Now let's talk about chapter 33. 
This final world is, is a war upon Assyria, this great threat of God's people. The historical setting, if you have the workbook, this quotation that's on the screen before you is found within the workbook. This is from George Robinson's work and commentary on Isaiah. And he says the precise historical situation of this chapter is defined in verses 7 through 12, from which it appears that the ambassadors who were sent by Hezekiah with costly tribute to Sennacherib at Lachish returned home with the melancholy news that the treacherous Assyrian had accepted their tribute but refused to abandon the siege. And he suggests looking at 2 Kings chapter 18. So let's take a moment and go over to 2 Kings chapter 18. One of the things we hope to do throughout is as much as we can lace the prophets in with the kings because that's where the prophets fit. So let's go to 2 Kings chapter 18. Uh, and we'll see more about Hezekiah in our next study starting in chapter 36. But in chapter 18, I just want to make this connection here, and you might make a marginal note, or if you've got the workbook, you've got that for future reference, that 2 Kings 18 is a, uh, a cross-reference here. But beginning at verse 14, the text says, The king Hezekiah of Judah sent the king of, As of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong, turn away from me. In other words, the siege is against Jerusalem, and he's, he's, he's doing whatever he can. King Hezekiah is trying to get him to turn back. So what does he do? He says... Uh, uh, you, uh, whatever you impose on me, I will pay. In other words, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Whatever tribute, whatever tax you want, I'll, I'll pay the tax. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver and gold found in the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He sent him everything to get his hands on. And at that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars, which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it uh, to the king of Assyria. Now, we'll talk more a little bit later about how that didn't work. So, this seems to be the setting for that, which would put the date about 701 B.C. And we'll come back to that date a little bit later. So, this is when, when um, and you've got a question on that, that the, the, uh, the historical setting is the nation that's the threat is Assyria. And the king is Sennacherib. And if you've got the updated version of the workbook, the material's the same. Some pictures have been added. There's this picture in your workbook of this relief of Sennacherib and his father Sargon II. Uh, and so this is supposed to be Sennacherib right here. That's a relief of him. Um, and so uh, it is Sennacherib that is the, the king of Assyria, and the date of the invasion is 701. So remember, B.C. date 701 B.C., Remember, B.C. dates go backwards, so 701 is later than Assyria has already taken Israel in 722 B.C. 701 is, is, is later than that. All right, so that's the historical setting for this, and that may be important uh, for us as we go further. So here's the point of 1 to 16. We've been talking about the nations section, or in the nations section. God's going to bring down this nation, that nation, and this nation. One of the things we saw was a hint a few times when that God is using Assyria to punish many of these nations. And then God had already told us in our last week's study that when he got through with Assyria, he'd take them down too. Because all he's doing with Assyria is using Assyria as a tool. Now that point's repeated time and again, so it must be an important point. And so I don't apologize for driving it home. And you say, I've already heard that. Well, I already have too. And so God drove it home to me and I'm going to drive it home to you. That God's using Assyria as a tool. 
We need to know God uses nations as a tool. He might be using our nation as a tool. He could use another nation as a tool against us. That's possible because God rules in the kingdoms of men, Daniel 4. So here's what we're learning here, that Assyria is going to fall and Judah is going to be delivered. He'd already hinted at that earlier, but here's the point to be learned, that Assyria, God's tool, is going to be destroyed. They're not the Almighty. God is the Almighty, and we're going to see that as we go along. So let's work through these six points. First of all, at verse 1, that he simply makes the point that the one who plunders will, plunder, uh, will be plundered. Woe to you who plunder. Here's another woe. Woe to you who plunder, though you have not been plundered, that is, they haven't fallen yet. And you who deal treacherously, though you have not dealt treacherous, they have not dealt treacherously with you. When you cease plundering, you will be plundered. Now, take verse, the, the second part of verse 3, when you cease plundering. It's not when they decide to cease plundering, but when God decides you're cease plum, uh, plundering. When I'm, I'm ready for you to stop your plundering, I'm going I'm to pull the plug on you. And, uh, and when you make an end of dealing treacherously, they will deal treacherously with you. So just as you have dealt treacherously and plundered, you're going to be plundered and be dealt uh, treacherously. God's going to punish them and bring them down. Now, again, as a footnote. We, we may get uh, too big for our britches as a nation and think, you know what, um, this is a powerful nation. We, we have the most powerful military on earth. Uh, we've stood for all these years, and uh, we're called upon to defend the nations around the world, and so this is a mighty nation. When God's through with this nation, he'll bring us down. And when he's ready to bring us down, he'll do it, and there's nothing that the Congress or the military or anything else can stop it. Because of Syria, God said, I'm ready to pull your plug, and he pulled it. And he'll do that with us as well. Now, beginning at verse 2, there's a plea for Judah, for God to be gracious. And so he pleads with God to be gracious to his people uh, by being their strength and their salvation, meaning that uh, their deliverance from the threat of Assyria. So let's get verses 2 to 4 here. Um, Notice at verse 2, he said, O Lord, be gracious to us, for we have waited on you. We have served, uh, uh, that is... conditioned if we're, we're faithful and we, we serve you faithfully. Be their arm every morning, the salvation in time of trouble. Now notice it verse through at the noise of the t- tumult, that is when, when Assyria is threatening and ultimately Syria uh, will fall, the people will flee. When you lift yourself up against the nations, uh, the nations shall scatter. So when, when, when uh, God deals with Assyria and finally brings them down, the nations are going to scatter. They're going to be fearful that if that mighty nation fell, well, then what's going to happen to us? Now, you just stop and put that in modern setting. What if you saw the United States just crumble and overtaken by another nation that we thought was weaker, but they're mightier than us? You, don't you think that nations around the world would begin to shake in their boots and think, you know what? If the U.S. fell, I thought they were the ones that were going to save us. They fell, then we, must going to be in, in, we may be in trouble as well. Now, at verse 4... Uh, at verse 4, he said, When Assyria is carried away, your plunder shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar. We'll come back to that in a moment. Running to and fro like uh, of the locust, he shall run about. And so the point here is that is your footnote, if you're following in the workbook, a quote from Homer Haley in his work on Isaiah, that the caterpillar in this instance refers to the development stage on which the locusts were very destructive. And just as locusts jumped from plant to plant and leaped from uh, one place to another, so likewise, 
there are people going to be jumping from one thing, one uh, uh, piece of, uh, of, um, of spoil to another piece of spoil to another piece of spoil. That's the idea uh, of the caterpillar here at verse 4. And so they're going to be scattered and they're going to, to run. So there's a plea for Judah when that's taking place. Defend your people from Assyria. Now, beginning at verse 5, the Lord's going to be exalted. Now, there's a practical thing at verse 5, and you've got that on your handout, so watch for the point here. At verse 5, the Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. Here's the practical thing to learn. We may get tired of the prophecy of doom and the gloom and doom that you read about in the prophets. In fact, we hear that sometimes, and I don't think people are being critical of us in our teaching program or being critical of God, but it's kind of like, you know, that prophecy last week was, was a prophecy of doom. This week it's a prophecy of doom. Next week it's a prophecy of doom. The last prophet we studied was a prophet of doom. This one is a prophet of doom. We're getting tired of prophecy of doom. Well, just remember this from verse 5, that prophecies of doom tell us this, that when God brings destruction upon an evil nation, God is exalted in that. So every prophecy of doom is a prophecy of God's name being exalted. So when God brings down an evil nation, that means righteousness stood. When God brings down another evil nation, righteousness stood. And when God brings down evil among his people, righteousness stood. So that means God's name is exalted every time the prophecy of doom is uttered. And I don't tire of God's name being exalted. And so that, that's the point we, we ought to see. But now here's the point at verse 5 and 6. The Lord will be exalted and he's going to bring justice and righteousness and stability. Now notice the contrast. Starting at verse 2 of the instability of Assyria with the stability of God's people. Now that's the contrast that you're looking for. There's the instability of Assyria in verses 1 to 6. We just saw Assyria is unstable because they're going to fall. There is the stability of those who fear God, God's people. So let's see this at verse 5. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness and wisdom and knowledge and will be the stability of your times and the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. So what's the point about the fear of the Lord? That is, he brings stability, wisdom, and knowledge to those who put their trust in the Lord. We saw in chapter 31, they were putting their trust in Egypt and not in God. But if you'll put your trust in God instead of something else, then there is stability there. There is instability with this nation that was thought to be so shaking and so powerful. Uh, but there's stability otherwise. So notice the instability versus the stability. If you're putting your, and, and here's something practical, if you're putting your confidence in the, uh, who you send to Washington for your future, you are, you're putting your, your confidence on something that's unstable. But if you're putting your confidence in the Lord, that's where stability is. If you're putting your confidence in your job or in your, your income or what you've saved for the future, that's something unstable. Your stability is confidence in the Lord. That's where real stability is. And so there's something practical if you don't have an answer to uh, some practical uh, lesson to learn. Now let's start at verse 7 now. Here is the Assyrian siege of 701 B.C. that we've been talking about, this historical uh, date, uh, 701 uh, B.C. So verses 7 to 9, the prophet gives a graphic description here, beginning at verse 7. 
And he starts off with the valiant ones. Surely the valiant ones cry outside. Now there's the commentators, as your footnote uh, recognizes, are at variance as to who the valiant ones are. Uh, Kyle and Daylitz think that it has reference to uh, the ambassadors that were mentioned in the same verse. Leupold thinks it's the soldiers who are ready to defend Jerusalem. It seems to me, as Edward J. Young suggests, that it's probably the Assyrians railing against Judah. And so the valiant ones, as the siege is set in 701 B.C., they're raging outside. And they're hollering and they're, they're crying they're going to, to attack. The ambassadors of peace will weep bitterly. Now that ties us back to 2 Kings 18. I think the ambassadors of those that were sent by Hezekiah with the tribute saying, go away, go away, here's, here's money, go away. And why are they weeping? Because it didn't work. We paid all that money and it didn't work. We gave him the gold out of the temple and it didn't work. He's still on. He's still coming. And notice the highway is laid waste. This is just the, the, uh, the picture of the threat that Assyria is causing for Judah. And this is a test of their faith. Because God had said in chapter 31, are you going to put your confidence in me or in God? And here's what, what tests them. They're crying outside ready to come in the city. The ambassadors are weeping, saying, we, we paid him off and he, he didn't go away. And notice the highways are laid waste. The wayfaring man ceases. The, uh, he's broken the covenant, didn't, no, didn't do what he says. He despised the cities. He has no regard for man. And the earth mourns. And then he mentions three areas, that is Lebanon, Sharon, and uh, our four areas, Basham and Carmel. These are cities of, uh, of uh, Judah that have been taken. Chapter 36, verse 1 indicates that he came and he took cities. Uh, we'll see that next week. And so already cities have fallen. He's at the door of Jerusalem. The, do the streets he has made bare and consequently um, he has no regard for mankind. And so are we going to put our confidence in the Lord that he's not going to come any further? God said he's not. But are we going to trust that? Are we, are, are we going to take up our agreement with Egypt and let Egypt fight for us? What are we going to do? Um... It's already underway. The siege is well already underway. Uh, and so what's going to happen? Well, he's going to tell us Assyria is going to fall. Now, beginning at verse 10, here's the point I want us to see. That Assyria is going to fall. That now I will rise. And this is in the context of, of Assyria being such a threat. I will rise. And, and now I will be exalted. And I will lift myself up. I'm going to raise myself up against Assyria. And what Assyria is going to be like, all of their threats are going to be like chaff and stubble. They're going to either be blown away or burn up. Doesn't mount to anything. Assyria is nothing for God to take. Now, uh, they're like thorns. You're going to be like thorns, verse 12, being gathered for the fire. It, it, the picture of thorns being gathered, dry brush being gathered for a fire, and you set it to fire, and it's, it's gone. Boom. And uh, he said, that's what Assyria is like. It's not going to take long to take care of Assyria. I, I, I'm, I'm dealing with Assyria like, like burning a, a bunch of dry kindling. Now, at verse 13, you might underline the word, my might. Here, you who are far off, what I have done, you who are near, acknowledge, this is God speaking, my might. Assyria is coming down by the hand of God. And so everybody close by and everybody far off, y'all pay attention God says, it's by my might this was done. I'm more powerful than Assyria, and Assyria 
uh, is going to be taken down. Now then, the sinful in Zion are made to tremble. Uh, this begins at verse uh, 14. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Now, I thought we were talking about Assyria. We are. But when Assyria, that mighty nation, falls, that should make the sinners in Zion, in Judah, afraid. So the question comes, and here's the question. We've got a, a section on your handout, the question, the answer, and the blessing. So let's, let's go to that. Uh, let's go to what the question was. At verse 14, the question then in light of that is, who among us shall dwell in the devouring fire, and who among us shall dwell with the everlasting burnings? In other words, let me rephrase that, who will escape the wrath of God? That's a good question, isn't it? When we see the wrath of God upon Assyria, that makes the sinners in Judah afraid, rightly so. And they're asking the question, who's going to escape the wrath of God? So here's the answer. Here's his answer in five parts. Verse 15 is the answer to that. Verse 15 says, he that walks righteously, in other words, the one who lives right, and he who speaks uprightly, the one who talks right, and he who despises gain of oppressions and gestures with his hand refusing bribes. In other words, no, 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 I won't, I won't take bribes. So he's not greedy and he's honest. And furthermore, at the end of verse 15, he stops his ears from hearing the blood, uh, bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. So here are the five things. Who shall escape the wrath of God? The one that lives right, talks right, is not greedy, is honest, and hates evil. That's interesting, isn't it? Make a good sermon. Well, now verse 16 gives the blessing, and there are three things in the blessing at verse 16. That he will dwell on high, and he will be defended. His place and defense will be a fortress of rocks. You put your confidence in God, and you live right and do right, What's going to happen is, God will be your defense. You will dwell with God, you'll be in a right relationship with God, and God will be your defense, and God will provide. Bread will be given and water will be sure. You'll have bread and water. Uh, I think that's standing for spiritual blessings that, that are given. But be that as it may, here's the question, here's the answer, and there are the blessings that are found right here in our, our text. All right, now let's start at verse um, 17 through verse 24. We're still in chapter 33, but we're going to make it, so, so let's, uh, let's work our way now through 17 to 24. You have a, a, a section on the back at the bottom, and it's always there if we have a messianic section. There are two messianic sections to watch for. Here's the first, verses 17 to 24. And we're trying to mark all the messianic sections. This is the first of our lesson tonight. Not the first of Isaiah, but the first in chapter 33 to 35. So here we have the messianic section. Now, just stop, let me stop and footnote. We, we've, those who've been in the class know that we've been talking about this all along, so everybody's on board. But just to kind of catch everybody up, that this is the style of the prophet. And that is he paints a dark background of sin of a nation, maybe Judah or another nation. And then in contrast, or growing out of that, he'll talk about the brighter future under the Messiah. And he does that, and he goes back and forth from one to the other. So he's just talked about the dark picture. Now let's talk about the brighter picture. The king and his beauty will bring peace and safety. Now verse 17, this is the messianic. Um, that your eyes will see the king in his beauty. And so here is the idea of a, uh, 
you, ha you have a, uh, a section, the last thing on the first page of your handout, a summary. I'm going to give four points, though there are more points in the, the workbook. I give four points of a, of a summary here. And the first bit is a perfect leader. In the kingdom, we have those in the kingdom have a perfect leader, verse 17. He's a great leader. We see him in his beauty. A king like, the, like Judah has never seen. Judah never had, uh, uh, they had some good kings, but they never had a great leader. Not like the leader in our kingdom. Israel didn't have any decent kings. So, um, consequently, what a contrast. Secondly, his territory is far off, verse 17. I think that's parallel to all nations shall flow to it, Isaiah chapter 2, 1 to 4. Uh, in other words, in the second thing in your handout is that it's available to all. We have a perfect leader and the kingdom is available to everybody. So no matter who you are, it's available to you. You can be in this kingdom. Now the next thing that's mentioned in verses 18 and 19 is uh, the present terror will be just a memory. In other words, there's going to be peace and safety. So what do, what, what do we see there? Well, uh, at verse 18, where is the scribe? You'll meditate on terror and you'll say, where is the scribe and who, uh, where is the one who weighs and where is the one who counts towers? Uh, the idea of there's no scribe to record a war. There's no one to weigh the tribute to appease the threat as they tried to with Sennacherib. There's no one to count the towers of a military strategy. And so consequently in the kingdom, we don't need all of that. Why? Because, look at verse 19, the threat, a threatening nation is no more. And so uh, you, will, you will not see a fierce people, people of an obscure speech, uh, of a stammering tongue. You see, when Assyria comes, then these are people of a stammering tongue coming in and shouting and, and ready to take them over. That doesn't happen in the kingdom. There's not another nation going to overtake us. There's not another kingdom about to come and take over the kingdom of the Lord. And so we have, in, in answer to your uh, four points that you're looking for in your handout, a perfect leader available to all, peace and safety. And then furthermore, uh, the last point being made here would be your fourth on your handout, and that is uh, there is salvation or forgiveness of sins. But the interesting parallel here, or the contrast, is that verse 23 and 24 is that of a broken ship not, that's not prepared for battle in contrast to a healed nation. And so here is the, the present nation that's in sin, like the sinner mentioned at verse 15. He says, your tackle is loose. Uh, they could not, uh, they could not uh, strengthen the mast and could not spread the sail. And so here's a, a ship that has a sail and, and things are broken and they can't get the sail up and they can't go out to battle. And so they're unprepared. In contrast to that sinful nation that has just been addressed, notice verse 24 to end that section, the inhabitant will not say, I'm sick. The people who dwell will be forgiven of their iniquity. So there is forgiveness available uh, in the Messiah. Uh, so your four points you were looking for there at the bottom of your handout is, and I just lost my four points, uh, perfect leader available to all, peace and safety and forgiveness is what you're looking for. All right. Now let's move on. That's chapter 33 now. Assyria is going to fall. And then here's the picture of great things under the day of the Messiah. Um, just as a footnote, I, I don't know if this interests you or not, but I like history in this sense that if I can find 
uh, in history, something that pertains to me. I don't mean about me personally, but maybe it's if I found some, some ancient thing where somebody was planning to build the city of Shelbyville before it was ever built. Wouldn't that be interesting to see where well, they were laying plans to start a new city and that I get to be in that city? Um, the blueprints of building the, the original building here. Uh, and I get to worship here, and yet I get to see those blueprints that it ultimately affects me. Well, long before the kingdom ever came into existence, here was the blueprint about it. And I get to be in that. I get to be uh, with that leader, and I'm part of the afar off, and I have that, I'm a part of that healed nation, and I have that peace and safety. And so that history back there of the planning long before I got to be in it is quite fascinating to me. But let's look at 34 and 35. We're only covering three chapters, and these two chapters kind of work together because these two chapters, what they do is summarize uh, the section of woes. And so there is a contrast uh, between the sinful nations, God's judgment on them, chapter 34, and the blessings in the day of the Messiah, chapter 35. So here we have judgment on the nations versus the joy and gladness uh, for the redeemed. So we've, we've covered these points. And so if, if we start now and, um, or when we get through with that, you're going to say, I didn't see anything in 34 or 35 that hadn't already been covered in Isaiah. Okay. I don't know what we're going to do with that information, but okay. Uh, we've already covered that. But here's the summary. Chapter 34 is a summary kind of the nations section, what God's going to do with the nations. And then 35 is how much in contrast that is to what the Messiah. It must be an important point because he's driven this point home. Uh, since chapter 13, and we're seeing it again. So if God thought I needed to read it a hundred times, then I probably need to read it a hundred times plus. All right, let's talk about chapter 34. Chapter 34 is the judgment on the nations. Five things happen here. The first thing is, and, and by, by the way, th this, we've talked about the nation section, there, there seems to be, there are chapters, I, I may rephrase that, doesn't seem to be, but there are chapters that will deal with Egypt specifically, Assyria specifically, um, uh, Edom specifically. This is a section that seems to be a broader, the nations as a whole. Edom is mentioned here. In fact, you have a question on that. That Edom is, is, is used here in the context to stand for the nations because they were a perpetual enemy of God's people. And I think that's why Edom is used here. I don't think he's singling out Edom versus Egypt is not included. Assyria is not included. Syria is not included. This is the nations. Any nation that's not in harmony with God is included in this section. So let's start with verses 1 to 4 now. Uh, God's wrath is stirred here against the nations that they do evil. Verses 1 to 4. It says, Come near you nations and heed you people. Let the earth hear... Uh, the world and all things in it, uh, uh, all things that come forth from it. Here's the point, verse 2. For the indignation of the Lord is against the nations. You might underline that. That summarizes this whole chapter. The indignation of the Lord is against all nations. And his fury is against all the armies. Um, he has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. Now, somewhere you've got a question about uh, chapter 34 and verse 2. This is a case of prophetic perfect. What is prophetic perfect? Prophetic perfect is where God speaks of the future in past tense. 
Now let's go to Romans chapter 4. And see a parallel to this. Verse 17, Romans 4, 17. You're looking for that verse. As it is written, I have, notice the past tense, made you the father of many nations. Now God said that to Abraham. That was before Isaac was born. I have made you. Not I'm going to, but I have made you. That's called prophetic perfect. Why is that? Because he speaks of things, he calls things that do not exist as though they did. It's the definition of prophetic perfect. It's like you asking someone who, uh, you ask someone to do something for you, and they say, it's done. No, I mean, it isn't done. You, you, hadn't, you hadn't even started yet. Uh, ask you to mow my grass, I need somebody to mow my grass, and you say, it's done. No, it didn't. I don't look at the grass, it's still, no. You're saying it's done in that it's so assured it's going to happen, you speak of it in past tense. Well, when God says it's done, when it's still in the future, it's done. It's going to be done. And we're going to see that later at verse 16 and 17. So uh, we, we're, we're going to rush to get over there and, and uh, see that. We don't want that to get away from us. Um, so anyway, that's verse 2. Uh, verse 3 and 4 just continues on with this idea of God's wrath being stirred. But I want you to notice that it's, it, it's so great, uh, and it, the, it has a great impact. So much so that verse 4 describes it, it's uh, that the, the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. Now literally, the heavens are not going to be rolled up. But when God shakes the nations and deals with them, it has the effect as if the stars of heavens all fall, just like the leaves fall from a tree. And that's the illustration that he gives here. And uh, it, it has a dramatic effect when God deals with a nation. Now the sword is drawn against Edom. Now again, Edom, I'm convinced, deals with just standing for the nation. But at verse 5, you have a question about this uh, on your handout. For my sword has been bathed in heaven. My sword has been bathed in heaven. In other words, the sword has been bathed in God's wrath. Uh, it's like someone who's firing a gun and then they say, I've loaded that, that, that up real hot. What does that mean, uh, Jared? We don't, we're not having class potential. When somebody's loaded up a, a shell real hot. Yeah, more, more than usual. Well, this, this sword is not a gun, but it's been soaking in the wrath of God. It's more than any normal sword. That's the idea. This, this sword, when I pull it out, has been soaking in heaven in the wrath of God against the nations. And I'm going to pull that sword out. So the sword of the Lord is drawn against Edom, he said, verses 5 to 7. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. Uh, and again, Edom stands for the nation, uh, uh, the nations as a whole. And so I'm going to skip down to verse 8 now. I just wanted you to see that it's soaking in the wrath of God. That's, oh man, this, this sword is, is ready for vengeance. Verses 8 through 12, the judgment is going to be quite severe. It's not that God's going to kind of slap the wrist of this nation, slap the wrist of that nation. For in that day, the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Look at verse 10, uh, or verse 9. Its stream shall be turned into pitch and its dust into brimstone. In other words, this is not literal terminology here that when God deals with Egypt, that the Nile River, therefore, is going to be turned into pitch. But it's going to be just as bad as if the rivers turned to pitch and the dust turned into brimstone. And it's not going to be quenched night or day. In other words, there's no stopping the wrath of God. 
There's no stopping him when he gets ready to deal with these nations. So you're getting a, a picture of the summary. God's wrath is stirred. His sword is drawn. It's going to be severe. The land's going to be 13 to 15, waste and barren. Well, look at verse 13. Thorns will come up in its places and, and nestles and brambles in the fortress. Wild jackals will be there. The arrow snake will, uh, arrow snake will make their nest and lay their eggs there. I, I'm skipping and picking up bits and pieces of 13 to 15 just to say it's, that when God shakes a nation, he leaves that nation when he's done with it. It's like it's barren. That nation's over. Assyria's over. Maybe another nation be there, but Assyria is gone. Assyria's going to be gone. It's done. It's finished. It's over. Same thing with Egypt and any other nation for that matter. Now, I want to get down here to verse 16 and 17. I said I wanted to get there, so let's go there. Here's something very practical. And you might make a marginal note to tie this back with that prophetic perfect of verse 2. Search the book of the Lord and read, not one of these shall fail. Not one shall lack their mate. For the mouth has, for my mouth has commanded it, and the Spirit has gathered them. He has cast lots for them, um, and his hand has divided among for the measuring line. Now notice this phrase, they shall possess it forever from generation to generation. In other words, search the book and see if you can find where a promise of God has failed, a record where it's failed and you won't find one. Find a promise of God where something's missing, where you can't find its mate. Something is missing from that. And well, part of this was fulfilled, but the other part wasn't fulfilled. Here's the lesson to be learned. And that is God's promises will not be broken and God will do whatever he has said. If he said he'll defend Judah, he's going to defend Judah. But it looks like a series coming in. I said I'd defend you and you, I'm going to defend you. Um, God said he'll bring Assyria down, but they look mighty strong. I don't care. God's going to bring them down. So God's going to do what he says. He always has and he always will. That's a promise. That's an assurance. All right, let's go to chapter 35 and wind this up. Chapter 35, the redeemed will be blessed with joyfulness. I said there are two messianic sections. Here is the second of the two. So chapter 35 is messianic. The whole chapter is messianic. There are four points concerning this messianic section. This, um, this chapter is coupled and joined with chapter 34 as a contrast between the sin of the nations with how great it is under the Messiah. And so we've got time to deal with these four points in the time that remain. So what's going to happen in the day of the Messiah? Again, here's that dark picture, dark background, brighter future growing out of that. So verses 1 and 2, it's a day of rejoicing. Now notice what happens to the wasteland. Now I've got four questions on the handout. What's going to happen to the ground that, that is wilderness? Well, let's see. The wilderness that is wasteland and the desert shall rejoice and blossom. In other words, here, here is a wasteland, picture of a wasteland, and that wasteland has just been pictured for us. That dark background. And suddenly out of that wasteland, you see blossoms come up. And it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice. So it's a day of rejoicing. Uh, has the glory of Lebanon, the excellence of Carmel, uh, and they shall see the glory of the Lord um, and the excellency of our, of our God. So the day of the, of the Messiah, we're living in that day, by the way. Uh, you think it's so terrible? Well, this is not a wasteland, I want to tell you. It's blossomed better than Lebanon. That's the point. Uh, we're not living in a wasteland. We're, we're in the day of the Messiah. Verses 3 and 4, the strength is the Lord. That's where the strength is. 
Look at verses 3 and 4. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knee. Does that sound familiar? Strengthen the hands which hang down and the knees which are feeble. Uh, look at Hebrews. I'm not going to turn there in the interest of time. Hebrews 12, 12. Make a note. Hebrews 12, 12. That is mentioned in, uh, it's, a, it's a description of discouragement, of hands hanging down and knees getting feeble. Uh, they're weary and discouraged. And so lift up, strengthen the knees and lift up your hands and become encouraged. So here's the point that their strength is in the Lord, and so there is no need for weak knees and hands hanging down. As, as a serious coming, your knees are getting feeble and your hands are hanging down. I'm discouraged, so we're scared to death. Not in the Lord. Not in the Lord. Not in the day of the Messiah. Be strong and do not fear. Verse 4. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Now, verses 5 and 6 talk about how well, uh, 5 through 7 actually, are how well blessed we are uh, that those who serve the Messiah are blessed beyond description. And notice the dr drastic change that takes place and how blessed they are. It's, it's like the, the eyes of the blind are open, the ears of the deaf will hear, and the lame begin to walk, and the dumb begin to sing. Uh, that's what a blessing it is. It's not saying talking about literal deaf uh, hearing and the literal blind beginning to see. But the drastic change of coming into the kingdom, that's what it's like. How well blessed we are. Um, in other words, every need is supplied. You have the need to see, you're, you're there. You have the need to, to hear, uh, it's there. It reminds me of Colossians 2, that uh, we're well blessed in Christ. All needs are supplied. We're completing him, to use the language of Colossians 2 and in verse 10. So water bursts forth in this wilderness of the parched ground, uh, becomes a pool, and it's different now under the Messiah is the idea. Now, one more thing before we close, and that is only the redeemed will be there in the, in the kingdom of the Messiah. What's interesting is this highway of holiness, and who's going to travel that? A highway shall be there, and it'll be called the highway of holiness. It'd make a good sermon, the highway of holiness, wouldn't it? The unclean shall not pass over it. So those in sin are not going to get to travel that road. They don't get to be in this kingdom. Now, there's a question at verse 8 that um, whoever walks on the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. Some have thought that that is saying the way of God is so simple, even a fool couldn't miss it. He can find the highway. That doesn't seem to be the point here. The point seems to be that only the redeemed will travel this road. A fool may stray from his normal path, but he's not going to stumble on the right path. In other words, you don't just stumble into the kingdom. Uh, the fool's not going to make it. Uh, the fool who has no sense of direction is not going to stumble and, hey, I just happened to get here and I don't know how I got in the kingdom, but I'm here. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Not at all. But who's going to be there? No line will be there. But look at verse 9, and you might underline, but the redeemed shall walk there. It's only for the redeemed. So what did I see here about the Messiah? It's a day of rejoicing. Our strength is in the Lord. We're abundantly blessed, but only the redeemed are going to be there. Only the redeemed are going to be in the highway of the Lord. What a contrast between the uh, sin of the nations and the brightness that you find in the glory and that you find in the day of the Messiah. Well, our time is, I started to say about gone. It is gone. Um, we'll stop there. Chapter 36 starts a new thought. Historical interlude.